Well, last week, as we looked at um, we looked at the topic of peace. Christmas is a time where we see the peace of God being given to man, and this peace is brought about by the peacemaker, the Prince of Peace. But as we come to the text this morning, we want to look at another, uh, another characteristic, another attribute that is given to us through Christmas, uh, namely that of joy. We begin our, in our text this morning looking at a group of people who certainly probably were not peaceful at this moment. In fact, we're told when, they, uh, when the glory of God sh- uh, shows up, all of a sudden they are fearful. And yet it's the bringing of the good news that brings peace to them, but also delivers joy. And so as we come to the text this morning, we find that there's a group of shepherds, a group of, of people here who are out in the field. Now this happens after Jesus is born. If you look in the couple verses uh, earlier, we read that in verse, uh, verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Jesus had just been born, and yet at the uh, delivery of this child, we find now that the news of this arrival now must go out. Because this is what happens when you have a baby. You've got to send out a baby announcement, right? Nowadays, right, you're not like uh, riding on some like fancy scroll and rolling it up, right, and sending it out for people to herald. Most, most often now people are, you know, putting it on their Instagram, put it up there, little, little, uh, and it's getting like more and more intense. People are crafting these things. It's just like over the top. But here is truly an announcement that should have been over the top. It should have gone far and wide, but yet we find that a curious group of people are the first to hear. A curious group of people here. This is uh, uh, not people that you would expect, perhaps, for the announcement of this newly born king to hear this arrival. We read this. In verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, we find that an angel of the Lord appears to them. They're out in a dark and quiet night, and out of nowhere, all of a sudden, an angel appears. An angel of the Lord appears to them, and, and, and... Breaking through the night, it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, everything, your eyes have adjusted to the situation, the circumstances. You're able to keep track of all of your sheep. You're able to be there and keep an eye out for things on the horizon. Are there, are there enemies out there? Are there wolves or bears or lions out there trying to attack? Is there something that's going to come and get the sheep? And as a shepherd, you're prepared, you're ready. Maybe you're finally at the place where the sheep have settled down. 
And all of a sudden, it's like someone has like a, the world's brightest flashlight while you're just like, like this crazy beam straight to your eyes. This is what they experience. The glory of the Lord. It would be quite startling. It would be something that would, it would be like they have never experienced before. To have something that was so bright that it would make it feel like daylight there. Like this, this glorious light that is pouring forth. Blinding them from all else. No longer able to see potential enemies. Maybe no longer able to see their own sheep. Because the job of the angels was to set this shepherd, this group of shepherds, their eyes upon one lamb in particular. The job of the angels was to herald the coming of the king, the pure, spotless, blameless lamb. The glory of the Lord shines around them, and they are filled with great fear. They don't know what's happening. They're like, what is going on? This is like something that we've never experienced before. And it's the first angel, this, this angel here, he brings them good news. While they have fear, he says, hey, you don't have to be afraid. I've got good news. This is exactly what you want to hear when you are in a position of being uncomfortable. Right? Last night, I had the, like, the worst night of sleep, like the worst night. It was just terrible. But there was like one particular moment where I was, it was hard to get into sleep, and I finally like got to sleep, and all of a sudden I just felt something and heard something in the house just go like, <laughs> this huge crash. And all of a sudden it's like, my heart's just like pounding, like, and like, I'm like, what was that? Like, I'm like telling Corinne, like, get, like, get up, we're like, we got to get, I know what was happening. I'm like, I got to find out what's going on. Now what happened was a, uh, like a bottle of shampoo, like fell in the, in the shower and like hit the bottom of the bathtub and made this huge ruckus. But you don't know what that sound is. You don't know what's happening. It's, you have this, this feeling of like, do I have to get up and fight somebody right now? It's like, that, that what's going on? Like, did one of my kids fall out of bed? Like, like what's, what's, what's going on? You have this instinct, all of a sudden, your adrenaline just ramps up. And you're thinking like, okay, I'm, I've got to be prepared. But I had to go and discover for myself what was happening there. Here, the Lord so graciously brings his presence to them, to the shepherds, but he also comforts them and says, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be worried. This is something you've never experienced before. I'm shining a bright light on you. There's a spotlight on you and you're, you're hearing this news. I'm startling you. You can't see your enemies. You can't see those who would come against you, but yet be at peace. Do not fear. I've got good news. Now, this would have been helpful for these shepherds. To hear this word of comfort, like, hey, like, no one's coming to get us. We can rest. To experience this supernatural event. 
But yet, this also probably would have been uh, something that would have been a bit calming because not only was it something that gave them an idea of, of safety, we're told that this good news is given to them as they're the first recipients of this, and it's there to bring them comfort not only uh, just in their immediate circumstance, but it's also meant to apply to them where they are at in their position in society. Because for shepherds, they had a pretty bad reputation. Like this is like the, you know, these are the lower members of society. They would have uh, been considered typically the outcasts of society. They were often not, uh, you know, the allowed to give testimony in court. There was some things that were kind of around their particular profession and the type of character who would be involved in this that they weren't known as being particularly faithful. And for them to receive this news, it's a, it's a weird group of people to receive this news. You would think that this would have been heralded in the, in the civic uh, realm, in the government there, where they would say, hey, here's good news, or they would have gone to the most influential or powerful people and said, here's the good news. Here's something amazing that you've got to know. But no, the gospel first comes to these members of society who are at the lower level. Now, history tells us that this group of people were probably some of the people who were uh, responsible for shepherding and overseeing the flocks that probably would have been used most frequently in Jerusalem at the temple. That they would have been used in this in this way, in, in the sacrificial offerings. And so perhaps here it's the Lord's intention also not only to say, you know, I'm going to bring the message to these outcasts in society, but also to say, you know, you guys are overseeing all the lambs that are sacrificed daily in Jerusalem. I want to bring you the message of this new lamb that I'm bringing. That you can see and observe, that you can watch. I want you to be invited in to inspect one more. My perfect lamb that I will deliver myself. This is the message of Christmas. Because the angel then immediately after showing up, after startling these men, in verse 10, says to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. We find that the, this angel is the first proclaimer of the gospel here in this New Testament. He has the good news. And he says in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. His job was to herald the good news, to proclaim that which God has done to introduce this new lamb. And he says, For unto you is born this day. In the city of David, a Savior who was Christ the Lord, they were close in proximity, geographically, to this place, Bethlehem. They say, just, just over the hill there, the Savior is born. The angels announce the birth of a Savior, which is exactly the need of, of God's people, the need of all mankind. 
He comes and brings this message to those who are on the fringe of society. He doesn't come into the government because we don't need we don't, we don't need someone to come in and bring we don't need an advisor. We don't need someone to to generate a committee. We don't need someone to put together some sort of board to review how things are done. We need someone to save us. And the saving in this time is done not at the seat of government, but through the sacrifices that were offered at the temple. For the cleansing of sin, that that blood might be shed so the people would be covered. You see, the Lord is bringing a message here, not that we need reformation through rules, but that we need salvation through the blood of the Lamb. The angel uses three titles I want to draw your attention to. Savior, Christ, and Lord. He says, for unto you this day, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. These three titles speak to Jesus' authority. First, he is a Savior. That's what the word Jesus means. It's a Savior. Secondly, he is called the Christ, which means anointed one or Messiah. This would have been a phrase that would have been familiar and used all the way back into Israel's history. They would have been familiar, expecting this anointed one, this promised Messiah. But then also he's called the Lord. He is Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Savior. But he is also God. He is Christ the Lord. At times in Israel's past, there was never a thought that God would be the one of this long-promised Messiah, this long-promised suffering servant. It was always thought that he would just raise up a man, somebody who would be powerful, like in Israel's history where he's raised up Moses and he's raised up you know, various uh, people to save Israel from their, from their circumstances throughout his history. David. But yet... The announcement is that God has come and dwelt among us. He is the Savior, He is Christ, and He is the Lord. He is manifested in flesh. And so the message is good news that God has come and dwelt among us. But this is connected to the message of the gospel. Remember, this is how the angel speaks in verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So three clauses there that we want to look at. First, I bring you good news, the gospel. Here is the good news, that the king has come, that the king is born, that he is what will we find in verse 11? In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, he is born. This is the good news. This is the good news. We find 
that this good news is then applied to whom? Verse 10, it will be for all people. This is good news for everyone. This isn't just good news for a particular people, a group of people that is qualified for this, to receive this good news, but it's good news for all people. It's good news for everyone. You see, when you think about it, when we say that there's good news, that always means, like in the back of our minds, that it's, it, there's just this thing that is connected to it. It's, it's not good news for everybody because somebody's going to be left out, right? Somebody's going to be left out of this good news. Whatever good news you have to bring, it can never apply to all people. Right? No matter what you're hoping for, looking forward to, it's just never, like, no matter how well-intentioned you are, it just can't apply to people. All people. Right? So let's take something good, for instance. We came here with good intentions. We came here to plant this church with good intentions, with good purpose. We've sought the Lord. It's good news that we've come here. Right? We could say that that's generally good news. But by coming here and making decisions in how we do things, it's also just simultaneously not good news for everybody in the sense that we're an English-speaking congregation. It could be news for them, but it's not necessarily like helpful for people who don't speak English because we don't have a service that's in another language. That just... It, we're, it's not, we're not trying to like be like, we're against people who don't speak English. It's just like... I can't speak all the languages, and we, can't, we don't have time to do all of that. It just, it's just a practical thing where as well-intentioned as we can be, as, as wanting to seek the Lord and obey him as, as much as possible in every way, there's just some ways that it, it just doesn't work. It can be good news for all the people who speak English. It can be good news for all the people who are, who are looking uh, who are wanting to come and be a part of a service that is in the style, in the, in the flow of the way that we have things. But for some people, it's just kind of like, okay, well, that, that, that's news, but it's just not helpful for me. But this news is for all people because Jesus is applicable to all people. That everybody needs Jesus. And he can meet everybody where they're at. No matter where you're from, no matter what your language is, no matter what your background is, no, he goes to exactly where you are at and meets you in your need because he's the only one who knows what you need. And we all have the shared need of our sins being paid for. Because by default, we're separated from God. We are in desperate need of a Savior. It's our sin that keeps us from him. And we all need the shed blood of Christ. To be cleansed, to be made, made new. It's good news for all people. It's, it's amazing news for all people. And more than that, what the angel says is this. Fear not, so a lack of fear, the peace of God is coming with the good news. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. So this is the the third clause that we look at, he brings good news of great joy. He doesn't just bring good news 
that is connected to circumstance. He doesn't bring good news that's connected to, you know, a particular desire or need that people have. He brings good news of great joy. This is something that goes beyond our circumstance of what we need at the moment. Because throughout biblical history, we find that there's different ways that our circumstances are spoken about and how we feel and respond to those things. And we speak about this all the time. The difference between happiness and the difference uh, between happiness and joy. Happiness is more connected to your circumstance, how you're feeling about it. You might be participating in something, right? You get a nice meal and you enjoy it. And then at the end, you're like, oh, like you don't have that meal anymore. And then you're like sad because it was really good tasting. And you don't have that anymore, right? Or you may have a friend who you have a deep connection with and might come to visit you. And then when they leave, it's sorrowful because then now they're gone. And, and you don't get to have the same type of fellowship that you enjoyed with them while they were here. You are temporarily happy. But throughout the biblical history, we find that there is a continuing, a lasting joy, a trajectory of joy that you find all throughout the scriptures where God's people are said to have a joy that goes beyond circumstance. This is why they are always told to be rejoicing in various circumstances. Even though things are difficult, even though things are hard, they are told to rejoice. Paul says this in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He's in difficult situations, yet rejoicing. Because when we have joy, it's much different than happiness because it's not connected to our situations. It's connected to our identity. Here's, and, and this, is, this is how we want to work at it. And this is why the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy. They're connected. You can't have great joy unless you have the good news. Right? You're never going to get joy. You're never going to get that great joy in your life unless you get the good news. It's one of those things that if you want to be a joyful person, don't try to be joyful. <laughs> it doesn't work if you try to pursue it. Because it's not the goal. Jesus is the goal. And when you get Jesus, then you get the joy. It's the byproduct of knowing and enjoying Jesus. You have the joy that he gives. He says, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy. The good news is that we have the opportunity to come into relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity to know him through his work at the cross. We have the opportunity to be in relationship with him. And when we do that, when we have committed in our, in our lives to denying ourselves, as Jesus tells us to do, when we lay down our lives for, for uh, his sake, when we put them aside and say, I'm going to die to myself, I'm going to go into the waters of baptism and let that old man rest in the watery grave, and I'm going to come up a new creation that Jesus has enabled me to be as a result of his work at the cross. When I do that, then I'm a new person, a new creation with a new identity. And when I work from that identity, when I'm that person, when I'm saying goodbye to my sinful past, and I'm working in my new identity, then I will have the joy that Jesus gives. That great joy comes from the good news. 
The good news that you don't need to protect yourself. You don't need to defend your identity. You don't need to defend your existence because Jesus already knows how bad you were. He knows way more about how terrible of a person you are. And he's paid for those sins at the cross, knowing full well that you're a terrible person, that we're all terrible people, that we sin against God daily. He sees all of those things and yet says, I know you can't pay for those. I'm going to go to the cross for you. Come and find your life. Come and find your identity in me. He's the only one that can know us fully, but yet still love us completely. We all have a breaking point where, you know, people offend us. They get, they sin against us and we're like, oh, I've had enough of that person. Like, I can't take it anymore. And the reason that we have that is because they continually surprise us. We continually surprise each other with our selfishness, with the ways that we sin against one another. That's why we get frustrated. We're like, I thought they were better than that. I can't believe that. I thought they were more considerate. I thought they, I thought they were like looking out for me. They surprise us. We surprise each other. But we don't ever surprise Jesus because he already knows us completely. He already knows us thoroughly and yet loves us completely. And he invites us to get rid of that old life and to come into a new life with him. To have this great joy that's connected to the good news. The truth of the gospel. And this is where we have to work from. This is what Christmas is about. That we get good news and it produces great joy. When we get good news, it gives us, the good news is that the Prince of Peace has made peace between man and God, and so we get his peace. When we, then we don't have to be afraid, like the angel says. When we get the good news, we also get the great joy that comes with it. And this is historically what God has been trying to teach his people. If you look back all the way to the book of Nehemiah, you find that this is the affirmation of God's faithfulness to his people. In the book of Nehemiah, here's what's going on. God's people have strayed from him. They've been going doing their own thing. It's just become a hot mess. It's kind of a part of the same cycle that, you know, we've talked about a million times that usually happens here. And they're so far from him that they've kind of gone their own way. But at some point, something happens where there's something that triggers this moment where uh, this guy, Nehemiah, he reads the book of the law to, his, uh, to this group of people. And they realize that they're in sin. They realize what's happened. They realize like, oh, we've strayed way far from God. And they begin to mourn. They begin to just be like, we are terrible people. They realize like that they have been, they've been sinning against the Lord. That they have not been keeping God's commandments. They've gone their own way. They've created their own identity. They decided they want to do what they want to do. And now they're coming to the realization that like, we messed up. And their worry and their fear is that they don't have an identity with God anymore. And so Nehemiah, who's the governor at this time, uh, and then he, he's, well, Nehemiah 8, I'll just read to you, Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. He's the governor. Uh, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So they find out, like, they're, they're sorrowful. 
they're trying to repent. They realize like what's really going on. Like we've been we've been acting this way our whole lot like whole lives. We've been trying to go our own way, and they've heard the truth of God's law. Like we've not kept His standards. We've not kept His standards, and so they know, they know that they are separated from Him. And then Nehemiah goes on in verse ten. He said to them, "Go your way. Eat the fat." And drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. Right? So here's what he's saying. You guys are repenting. You guys need to go out and have like a party. (laughs) He's like, you guys need to go out and celebrate. You guys need to eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who like, he's like, this is like a holy day. This is the day of the Lord. We're rejoicing together. Like, we need to get on this. And he's telling them, like, you can weep, but you also have to, like, move into, like, a part where we're celebrating now. He says that this is your, your charge. Do not be grieved. You can be repentant over your sin, but also do not be grieved. Because why are they grieved? They're separated from God. But then he says, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Like, what in the world is going on there? All the way back in the New Testament, we're hearing these same words. Nehemiah, he's the leader of the people. He steps in to comfort them, to command them. Don't be grieved. For the, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What's he getting at there? Well, what he's reminding them of, of God's faithfulness. Because a part of it is, remember, God's people are in covenant with the God of Israel. And, they, and, and his word says, if you are If you disobey me, if you disobey me, then there will be curses that will come upon you that will are designed to bring you back into relationship with me. But yet, if you obey me, I will bless you. I will give you all that you need. I will provide for you. And so what Nehemiah is getting at here is he's saying, friends, weep over your sin. Repent of your sin. But yet, This is a turning point. Now it's time to celebrate because what we're realizing here is that God is reaffirming his covenant to you. There's good news. Even though you've broken the law, he has remained faithful. Even though you have been far from him, he will be faithful to keep his word. If you repent of your sin, he will turn his heart from a heart of bringing discipline upon you to one that's bringing blessings. He's trying to get them to understand that you guys are still his chosen people. You're still in covenant with him. He's still your God. What he's saying there is that your identity, the good news that you're in a covenant with God, is connected to your joy. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The identity in his commitment to his people it tells them who they are. It reminds them who they are. And when they're reminded who they are, then they can have be, be joyful. Because the joy is connected to him. Even David understood this. He realizes that safety, contentment can be found with the Lord. David discovers a secret. He shares this secret as he, as he recounts 
you know, situations of suffering and hardship in Psalm 16. Verse 11, he says this of the Lord, you make known to me the path of life. He's like, God, you've given me a secret. You have exposed to me the path of life. I've figured out how to move from this path of hardship and suffering. I've come and found this path of life. It belongs to you. You have shown me the path of life. What he's getting at here is to say, to know the Lord is to know the path of life. Why is David concerned about the path of life? Well, because as we've been studying, David's on the run all the time. Everyone's trying to get him. He's always concerned about his life. He's always concerned about people trying to attack him. He's always trying to walk in the way that will be safe and secure. He says, you make known to me the path of life. He's discovered that the Lord has the path of life, and apart from the Lord, he cannot find this path of life. It belongs to the Lord. And so in order to know the path of life, you have to know the Lord. His identity is found, again, in the Lord. His contentment is found on the path. And as the Lord reveals to him this path of life, and as he walks on this journey with the Lord, he becomes more and more and more content. Why does he become content? Because if the path belongs to the Lord, if the path belongs to the Lord, if the Lord is the one who delivers David, who gives this to him, then this means this is where the Lord is. He's walking the path with David together. David's not on his own. Like, the Lord's like, okay, well, there it is. Like, good luck. He's walking this path together with him. Because David continues and he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. He's like, we're walking this path and I am completely content. I am full of this joy because you have the path. My identity is in you. I'm in your presence. Everything's great. I'm able to stand in the midst of hardship because I'm on this path together with you, God. More than that, David even recognizes that the Lord, in the Lord's presence, not only is there joy, but the Lord also doesn't withhold anything good from his people. There's joy, fullness of joy. And then he continues, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, this is important for David to bring up here. Because our joy is connected to knowing God, remember? Our joy is connected to our identity in God. We find it when we understand the good news. By contrast, our happiness is connected to circumstance. How we feel about things at the moment. And what David is saying here is not only is there joy and fullness of joy in the presence of God, but also God's heart is to bring these great blessings to his people. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's saying that because in his heart, and he knows in our hearts, that we have a temptation to say, oh yeah, I'm walking this walk with God. And then we're like, oh, well, that kind of looks nice over there. We feel the pull of this world. We feel the temptation. We feel that like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. Like, I'm, I feel like things are pretty good here, but like, I wonder if that's great. 
I wonder if, like, that's great. Like, maybe it could be good if I go over there and check this out or get interested in this or that. But he is not, he, he's guarding himself against temptation. He's saying, not only is God the only one who's going to satisfy me in the fullness of joy, he's also the one whose heart is to give me the best of the best to give me exactly what he wants, pleasures forevermore. There shouldn't be something that's competing in my heart for even happiness there. My joy is in him. The circumstances change in my life. I will remain in that joy in those circumstances, but I'm also not going to be tempted by these other things in life. I'm also not going to be swayed by circumstance. If there would be any temptation for David to be like Israel uh, in this time of Nehemiah, where they're like, hey, like we're, we went after our own way, we wanted to create our own identity, we want to go do our own thing. He could know for certain that the Lord is better. That the Lord is better. He's better than all of those temptations that Israel took up. He has joy in the Lord. He's firm in his understanding. And I think he understood this at a way where he constantly, throughout the Psalms, you see him pursuing the Lord uh, as the goal. He's not, using, he's not using God as a means to get what he wants. He ends up being joyful. He ends up being satisfied because he's pursuing God. And he receives the byproduct of God's character by knowing and enjoying God. He understood that the Lord desires to provide and satisfy his people in every way with himself. Jesus remarked similarly in John 15. He desires for his people to be joyful. He closes the loop for us here. <coughs> in John 15, 11, he says, these things I have spoken to you. He's like, I've just instructed you, I've taught you about abiding in the vine, about being in me, about being connected to me. I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you. He's like, Jesus says, I have a joy that I want to give to you. I want to give you of myself that my joy may be in you. And then he says this, and that your joy may be full. He's like, I've got what I want to give to you, and when I give it to you, it will be full. If you feel like you're not joyful, it's because you're trying to get another joy that's not Jesus' joy. You're trying to fill yourself up with happiness. You're trying to, it's connected to circumstance. Jesus says that when he gives joy, you're full, stuffed, no room for anything else. Your joy will not be full if you do not have the joy of Christ in you. It just won't happen. The only thing that fills you up, the only thing that satisfies you, the only thing that completes that hole in your heart is Jesus. We can be said to have the fullness of joy in God when we are able to see Jesus clearly in contrast to the other things in this world. Oftentimes, 
a part of my prayers, I separate out two, two parts of the uh, emotional part of man, let's say. We've got that, the head and the heart. The head and the heart. Right? Those are two kind of separate things. And often in, in my prayer time, I need to pray into both of those things. I need to pray into both of those things. And a frequent prayer of mine that I ask the Lord for all the time is that the Lord would set my mind's attention on the Lord, on Jesus. I want my mind's attention to be on him because most of you who know me know like I have a mind that will set its attention on a lot of things and that are like not real they're just they're not bad but they're just not Jesus and I'll get thinking about something very deeply that's not helpful my mind's attention on Jesus but then I know also that I have a heart problem so I need both of these things to be focused so my mind's attention goes to Jesus but then what the heart is pursuing is that which it loves most. That which it loves most. And so my secondary prayer, which kind of comes in, they come together, is the affections of my heart would be stirred for Christ. I want my mind's attention and my heart's affection to be focused on Jesus. If you only get one, the other one's going to start to overrule you. I need both to be engaged in heart and mind in seeing in pursuing and enjoying Jesus. I want to be obsessed on both ends, in my heart and in my mind. If it's one or the other, you're gonna, the, the mind is going to overtake the heart or the heart's going to overtake the mind. You need both of them to attack together. Because they, they want to go different directions. And you need to set them in concert together. To say, we have got to pursue Jesus. We've got to see him. When you do this, it allows you to see every other thing in life as standing against Christ and competing for your attention and your affections. When you're able to see these things in this manner, or at least for me, it's helpful because I can see as things start to come in and put on their like song and dance to try to get my attention, I can say, you're not Jesus, get out of the way. Or as things start to creep into my heart to say, hey, like you should really enjoy me, I can say, like, no, nope, you're not Jesus, get out of the way. I've got them both on guard. I'm trying to pray into those. I'm asking the Lord to do it because I know that my tendency is to not do that. So I have to pray into it. But I want them both to be on guard so that way I can see everything as trying to compete against Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus is undefeated. I am not. So I have to make this my prayer constantly. I have to be pursuing this. He never fails, but I fail. So I've got to be purposeful in this. In order to have joy, in order to survive, I've got to get Jesus. To see as other things competing against him, my emotions. If I'm frustrated or angry or upset or grumpy, I have to see that it's because I'm preferring myself. In no, in no circumstance, no situation, 
is there ever a place where I can, am allowed to sit comfortably and be like, it's okay for me to be grumpy or okay for me to be upset? Whatever that is, Jesus didn't come to let me sit in that, right? He didn't come to let me sit in my frustration or anger or grumpiness. He came to give me joy, life, and life abundantly. So if I'm going to sit in that, it's because I haven't dealt with it with Jesus. It's because I haven't seen him clearly. It's because I haven't asked him to deal with my heart or my mind. Jesus didn't come to let us sit in these, you know, kind of phases. He came to give us peace. He came to reconcile us to God. He came to give us his joy. And so, however you're feeling, whatever is going on in your life, whatever you're struggling with or have issues with, you've got to put it up against Jesus and say, like, Jesus, attack that thing. Get it. Crush it. Destroy it. When you open your life up to ask him to do that, he'll, he'll do it. He'll do it. But you can't say, Jesus, can you do this? Can you do this work because it's really annoying? You have to say, Jesus, I want more of you. I want you. And these other things are distracting me from you. The other, these other things in my life, they're taking up my, my mind's attention and my heart's affections. Like, I want you. I don't know how to get rid of these, but I want you. You can't try to use him. It's, it's a very, very tricky line. It's a very, it's easy to like get lost here. To try to say, well, this isn't right or this isn't good. I got to use Jesus to get rid of these. He won't be used, right? He's going to get you. So you got to get him. You got to pursue him. You got to come after him. And when you pursue him, when you know him, when you enjoy him, when you open yourself up to receive him in this way, you will become content and so full because he gives you the fullness of himself. And when we receive this, like the shepherds, the search for the good news can be over. They don't have to worry about what's going on. The good news comes to them and the angels basically giving them a shortcut. He says, Shepherds, what you've been looking for, the most perfect, spotless lamb, the lamb without blemish that you've been trying to raise your whole life, that you've been working so hard to achieve, but like can't quite get there all the way. Seems like it's good on the outside. Who knows what's going on on the inside? What you guys have been working for, you guys have been trying to, to achieve acceptance in society and culture. You're an outcast. You're the far, far away from others. These things that you're pursuing... You could go on that journey still. But the angels come up and they essentially say, hey, uh, everyone, the search is over. We found, we found ultimate joy, ultimate contentment, ultimate satisfaction for all people. Isn't this what they say? Fear not. So the abolishing of fear. Good news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The good news is that the search for satisfaction is over. You don't have to go and try to make things and figure out what works or what doesn't work. We're told explicitly, here it is. We can be full of joy in Jesus and we can remain <clears throat> full of joy in Christ because when we trust in Jesus for salvation, our identities are rooted in him. 
And in his presence is fullness of joy. So if you get Jesus, you get the presence of Christ. And when you get the presence of Christ, you get the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So if you want Jesus, you'll get joy. If you want joy, you got to start with Jesus because if you try to get joy apart from Jesus, it just won't happen. As always, Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is all we want and all we're after because he's the only one that made it possible for us to have peace with God through his work at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness and consideration and giving us the fullness of yourself at the cross. Lord, we celebrate you and your work and we reflect on that together. Lord, that we are united because we all come making the confession that we need you, that we can't save ourselves, that we can't rescue ourselves from sin. And you're the only one that can do it. And so, Lord, as, we, as you know we have this need, Lord, you were so faithful to, to take care of that. Before we were even aware of what our need was, you had already made provision. You'd already made a way. So we want to say thank you. We look to that day where we will see you face to face and we can enjoy you together. Lord, we want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. We want to have that fruit of the Spirit that is joy. We know that it only comes from you. Fill us up fresh and new. And Lord, we pray this prayer collectively that you would set our minds' attention and our hearts' affection upon Jesus. We need to direct both of those things to you so that we might receive you properly, that we might interact with you clearly in a way that exalts you as our Lord and King, that shapes the way that we live every single day. Thank you, Lord, for being the author and finisher of our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. And we love you because you first loved us. Be glorified in your church, Jesus. Amen.